Good afternoon. This is Midday Magazine for Thursday, September 29th. I'm Julie Hersey with these stories. Trollers in southeast Alaska may have left a sizable portion of their allocation of king salmon in the water when the summer season wrapped up on September 20th. But that doesn't mean it was a bad year. Instead, it was a rather unusual year. Robert Woolsey has this report from Sitka. If you've lived in Alaska for a while, you've probably heard about the short summer king seasons in southeast, all-out efforts that last anywhere from three days to a week beginning on July 1st. That was not the case this year. Being able to retain Chinook for the entire summer is, is, is not something that they're used to. Right. Commercial trolling for king salmon was open all summer, with only three days off to allow silver salmon, or coho, time to escape into their natal streams, lakes, and rivers. Grant Hagerman is the Southeast Troll Management Biologist in Sitka. He says the long summer season wasn't due to a lack of king salmon. Rather, it was an abundance of choice. Commercial trolling has changed. Obviously, they've they've diversified and and have a number of different species they can target. That is spread kind of effort out between those fishing Chinook, those fishing coho, and and kind of those fishing enhanced chum salmon. Enhanced chum, another name for chum salmon reared in a hatchery and released into the wild, completely changed the dynamic of the troll fishery this summer. Trollers caught about one million of them, many from a hatchery release site in Deep Inlet, which is just a few minutes run from Sitka's harbor. Chum have historically sold for around 50 cents a pound, but this year topped out at about a dollar twenty. That's eight million dollars in chum. Kings are worth about five times as much, but there are a lot fewer to be caught. Just one hundred and fifty thousand this summer, and the best king fishing is offshore, which takes time, fuel, and decent weather to make happen. Hagerman says it's no mystery why so many trollers diverted to chum fishing. There were about two hundred and fifty trollers out of a fleet of probably seven hundred that chose to fish enhanced chum salmon for about five weeks. It was basically the end of July and almost all of August while Chinook salmon was open. As a result, by season's end on September 20th, trollers had left about 9,000 of their summer Chinook allocation in the water, fish that won't be rolled over into the winter troll fishery, which opens on October 11th. Besides the abundance of fish, another significant factor to consider in evaluating the success of summer trolling is the scarcity of permit holders. Hagerman says that there were about 100 fewer boats trolling in southeast this summer than the five-year average and perhaps 200 fewer than the 10-year average. Although it would mean a bigger piece of the pie for trollers who stayed in, the summer's high inflation took a far bigger bite out of a boat's income, called ex-vessel value, than anyone anticipated. I guess you could look at the ex-vessel values as, you know, I would say better than average. But, you know, what you're not looking at is, is net values. You know, obviously the, the price of, of everything is groceries and fuel and everything. And although prices seem to be pretty good, they're not really uh, higher than what they have been in the last five, ten years. And so, like I said, it hasn't really compensated for that huge increase in fuel price. And while it was not a bad season for coho, at $2 a pound, it was still difficult for trollers to make ends meet with silvers. Hagerman believes that many trollers just decided to wait for the more attractive economics of chum. There were, you know, a fair number of permits that tied the dock until this enhanced chum sand run started coming through. And, and then, 
you know, boats kind of came out of the woodworks. We had we had boats from all over southeast that were here for a month, basically. Hagerman says it's too hard to predict whether this is the new normal for southeast trolling. There have been large runs of hatchery chum in the past, but the price difference between chum and Chinook kept the fleet's focus on kings. He hasn't seen many new permits in the fishery recently, and he hopes that the number of trollers working, though lower than past years, levels out. The future is really anyone's guess. As far as the new norm, he says, every year is different. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. Southeast Alaska's wolves tend to favor deer and moose in their diet, but in a pinch they won't say no to black bear or even sea otter. A study now in its eighth year has found a remarkably diverse diet among the region's wolf population. Although scientists use GPS collaring and other technology in their work, many of their conclusions are drawn from a large and growing collection of scat. Coast Alaska's Angela Denning has this report. Petersburg has had a small pack of wolves hanging around the outskirts of town this year. Several residents have zoomed in with their cell phones to capture individual wolves here and there. On social media, a few people said the wolves were stalking them. Others revere the sightings. Biologists have seen the pack on game cameras and think it's a pair with three yearling pups. Anybody been lucky enough to see the wolves have been hanging out behind the airport? That's Frank Robbins, the area management biologist for the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, speaking at a public presentation in August. This Mitkoff Island pack is part of a gray wolf subspecies known as the Alexander Archipelago wolf. They're specific to southeast Alaska and tend to be smaller and darker in color than their mainland counterparts. Robbins and other biologists hope this close-to-town pack is an opportunity to learn more about local wolves. They've successfully collared a black male in the pack and hope to get others. They use padded spring traps that capture the wolf by the foot. Um, we'll have signs up like that anywhere where we would put a trap. Of course, we won't put a trap anywhere near where folks are out walking their dogs or where people are likely to encounter a set. The collaring project near Petersburg is part of a much larger study in Southeast led by wolf biologist Gretchen Roffler. She's been studying wolves in the region for eight years to find out their eating habits and range. Southeast Alaska, it's a very large and diverse landscape with different prey combinations available on these island groups and on the mainland. So, for example, some islands have deer as the primary prey whereas others have both deer and goats or deer and moose. To gather data, they've collared wolves from five different wolf packs. In the process, they collect information like age, weight, and if the wolf is one of the reproductive pair of the pack. They also take blood and hair samples for studying genetics and diseases. Then they wait. If the wolves hang out in a certain location for more than a few hours, it could be a kill site. And then the scientists move in. So we're traveling these sites by all possible means, by hiking on foot, by skiff, um, by kayak. Sometimes we use helicopters to get close to the sites and then hike in. And once we're there, we scour the ground to look for prey carcasses or parts of the carcasses. They've studied over 200 sites so far and learned that heavy snowfall is good for wolves. It slows down prey and the wolves scavenge moose that have starved. Wolves also eat seasonally, sometimes focusing on salmon in streams during the summer. But hooved animals are their favorite. Wolves really tend to focus on the ungulates that they have available in their area, you know, be it deer or moose or goats. 
and they found that southeast wolves have dozens of alternative prey species. Roffler and her helpers are also collecting wolf scat, lots of it, over 2,000 samples. And with that, they've identified over 60 different prey species. Combining those findings with the kill sites, they've learned that wolves eat beaver, porcupine, marmot, adult black bear, brown bear cubs, even invertebrates off the beach. This alternative prey varies by location. So in places like Prince of Wales Island, wolves consumed beaver and black bear. On QU Island, wolves also consumed black bear. And then we have places like Gus Davis and Pleasant Island that are close to protected areas like Glacier Bay National Park. And they are consuming sea otters. That's right, sea otters. So far, I have found 31 sea otter carcasses killed by wolves. Rossler is working on publishing a paper based on these sea otter hunts, which she's personally observed. The southeast wolves have been surrounded by debate in recent years, with some environmental groups seeking federal protection of the subspecies and some local hunters seeking more harvest of the wolves for eating too many deer. Roffler says she tries to stay away from the controversy and is just interested in the science. Reporting in Petersburg, I'm Angela Denning. You can see more details and photos of the southeast wolves study on our website, kfsk.org. The state health department sent out its last COVID-19 data summary on Wednesday by email and social media. It marks a shift from focusing on case counts to tracking broader trends across the state. The department will continue to send its weekly COVID and flu update on Fridays. Alaska's chief medical officer, Dr. Ann Zink, says those updates will still include COVID case counts. But we try to put that into a larger context where we also talk about how many people show up in the emergency department for COVID-like illness, how many people are showing up in the emergency department for influenza-like illness, uh, how full are the hospitals in general. Wednesday's data summary reported 34 hospitalizations and 546 resident cases in the last week. Zink says it's becoming harder to track case numbers as home tests have become more popular, and those results don't always get reported to the state. It's become increasingly problematic as we have so many more home testing and why we need to use it in combination with other data sources to give Alaskans uh, the best sense that they can of kind of the overall transmission and respiratory illnesses in their community at any given time. Singh says there are important differences between COVID and the flu to keep in mind when it comes to risk level. Older Alaskans are still at the highest risk for severe illness and death due to COVID, while flu carries increased risk for both the very young and the very old. People should consider getting flu vaccines now, anyone six months and older, particularly the young and the old, or honestly people who interact with the young and the old, which is a lot of us. The bivalent COVID booster, which teaches the immune system to fight both the original COVID strain and the Omicron variant, has been available for about two weeks. It's safe to get the booster and the flu vaccine at the same time, and Zinc said many hospitals and long-term care facilities are administering COVID boosters and flu vaccines at the same time. She expects booster numbers to increase as those efforts continue. Zinc says she recommends getting a flu shot by the end of October. And as fall turns to winter, she says, taking care of your mental and physical health is extra important. Congresswoman Mary Peltola, the nation's first Alaska Native elected to Congress, will serve as a keynote speaker at the Alaska Federation of Natives Conference this year. AFN President Julie Kitka hailed Congresswoman Mary Peltola's special election victory as making history. 
And in a statement on Tuesday, Kika said, quote, we want to continue celebrating her win as it's a win for all of Alaska, unquote. Peltola will speak at the Denina Center in downtown Anchorage, and the convention will take place there October 20th through October 22nd. That's it for Alaska News for Midday Magazine on this Thursday. And coming up next, we will have weather.